Welcome to the Branding Boardroom, the podcast where we discuss brand strategy and how it should be understood, formulated, and implemented by senior corporate decision makers. Our guests range from prominent CEOs to accomplished academics and thought leaders. But there's so much more. They're also interesting people. And on the show, you'll get to learn about their stories and about the advice that they give to the world's top companies. My name is Ivo Ganchev. I'm your host and a senior executive at Top Brand Union, a Chinese consultancy which publishes influential ranking tables in the branding industry. We also organize the annual China Brand Festival. And this year, it's taking place right here in Changsha, where our secretariat is located. Now follow me into the branding boardroom. Professor Oliver Eric Yellow is a leading figure in the fields of brand sociology, brand management, and consumer philosophy. In 2018, he was appointed to the world's first professorship in brand sociology at Mitvaida University of Applied Sciences, and previously taught at the University of Hamburg, as well as at the Lucerne University of Applied Sciences and Arts. He's the founder of the brand development agency Bureau für Markenentwicklung, as well as the head of the innovation lab at Deutsche Zerederei, a German holding company with subsidiaries in a wide variety of sectors. Professor Eric Yellow is the author or co-author of numerous research publications and 20 books, including the influential volumes, green branding and reality in branding. His work has attracted considerable interest from German media and his collaboration to create and market a wooden radio with award-winning design has been a major story on Der Spiegel. Professor Eric Yellow is also a frequent guest author and commentator for other influential media such as ARD and ZDF. He is widely recognized for his thought leadership and he has delivered keynote speeches globally across many countries including China, England, Austria, Italy, Singapore, and Indonesia. And it's my great pleasure to welcome today Professor Oliver Ericiello. Hi, Oliver. Where are you calling from? Hi, Ivo. Um, I'm here from Hamburg in Germany, and I'm very happy to be in your show today. Thank you very much. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us. So we all know about your career and your achievements, and you've had great success working both in academia and in industry on many exciting projects. But before we get into your big achievements in your current work, let's begin by talking about your story. What was the beginning of your career like? <laughs> well, that's a long story because I'm already old. So I like to make it short. Um, I started studying sociology and psychology here in Hamburg in the 90s. And normally my path was quite clear. I wanted to become a journalist. But at that time, my first lesson of sociology was uh, on a gray October day in 1994. I got to know um, a seminar by my, well, then later, um, Professor Alexander Dijksel, and he was talking about brands and sociology, and I was not expecting that. But this was the start of my career or my connection to brands at that time. 
Later on, I continued uh, studying sociology and psychology and politics. Uh, went on working uh, for companies, for advertising companies uh, here in Germany and uh, getting to the famous Institute for Brand Technique or Institut für Markentechnik in Geneva, Switzerland, where I had the opportunities in, in the 90s and in the 2000s to, well, support companies by strengthening their brands in Europe big brands, big companies, and, uh, well, I decided to, to quit um, consulting after about five years, and then I re-studied again psychology in France, uh, in Lyon, and, uh, well, getting hopefully much wiser <laughs> and having more insights in order then to work again in marketing for, uh, for medium-sized companies, and the furniture business here uh, in Germany. And uh, then I started to teach because I was always fascinated uh, in order to get into contact with the, the young generations to learn for them. But because in the end, uh, a professor is nothing else than an internal student. And um, we continued studying. And um, then I was opening my own consultancy in 2006. Um, and started uh, consulting uh, medium-sized and big companies, um, the Beruf für Markenentwicklung here in Hamburg, and uh, I was asked some years later uh, to do the innovation uh, lab for a big hospitality player in Germany. So in the moment, uh, my career pathway uh, has three pillars. It's the academia, it's uh, consultancy, and its daily business in hospitality. That's what my path is until now, and I'm very curious to see what will happen in the, in the coming years. Wow, what a fascinating path, and uh, uh, it's very um, full of diverse experiences along the way. Um, so you mentioned the company that you're currently running, the uh, Bureau für uh, Markenentwicklung, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. You speak um, perfect German, Evil. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you also uh, work with other companies as well. So one thing that perhaps our audience would be interested in is uh, what can you do to help these companies? What kind of uh, services do you provide for um, the industry? And how does this relate to your work in academia as well? Well, it might irritate some, some of uh, the viewers uh, uh, to, to see a sociologist and psychologist talk about brands. Because normally um, you've, you've got a lot of people coming from uh, economics uh, in order to manage brands. Well, that's the point. To understand a brand, to understand how trust works, and trust is nothing else than a social dynamics in order to minimize your transaction costs. Well, in order to do that, you need to understand how groups of people, how, well, collectives do work. And that's what we do in the Büro für Markenentwicklung. It's about strengthening um, the perception of people towards a certain performance um, of certain companies. And the laws of how to strengthen this trust, how to strengthen um, the appearance within the public. Well, this is a truly sociological topic. 
And this might sound very theoretical, but in the end it's not theoretical because you have to find um, the instruments and maybe also the, the, the pillars of success of a brand in order, well, to adjust them, to manage them, to, in the end, strengthen the brand. Because it's all about, uh, well, finding a way um, to have a certain concept of perception, clear perception to the public in an era where it gets more and more complicated Uh, well, to install your message, um, because there are so many messages, so many irritations in the market, so that in the end, just the brand who has a clear image, who has a clear, clear uh, uh, notion of what they are doing, might have the possibility to get into the mind of the people. This uh, service really seems like uh, it fits the current market needs, and I'm sure that your clients must be um, very happy um, about the types of uh, help that you can provide them with. Uh, and you've completed a lot of fascinating projects um, uh, with your partners at the company as well. One of them, which uh, I read about in some of your works, was uh, something that you called the wooden radio. And this is something that uh, seemed um, really exciting. So could you tell us a little bit more about uh, this project? How did it start and what can we learn from it? So, uh, well, the wooden radio Uh, project has become more than a project. It has really become something very crucial for me in a certain period of life. Um, and that's maybe also the fascination of the work of the Berufe Markenentwicklung because you have a lot of different types of projects, of works, of brands um, which we support. So we support, um, for example, some medium-sized companies But we also supported uh, the Swiss Army, uh, very interesting, or even the church. So it's, it's very different from all the angles in which we have. But Wooden Radio and my accident, I've got the, the project here, um, has been a real Wooden Radio. And, um, well, the idea behind Wooden Radio is quite simple. In 2006, I had been the marketing manager, the marketing CEO for a company, for a European company, Uh, which were doing in garden furniture. And you know that you normally are, are, are visiting all these kinds of uh, fairs. And I was in, uh, at that time, I was in Jakarta in Indonesia. This single radio in a very, very, uh, well, um, lost <laughs> corner of the fair. And I talked to the designer and to the developer of this project. It was an Indonesian uh, designer, Singi uh, Susilio Katono, uh, who came from Bandung in central Java. And, well, I wanted to buy this radio just for me, for my family. And they said, no, I'm not going to sell you this radio because, uh, well, it's my main project. I care a lot for it. And I accepted it, but I kept his email address. And then we stayed into contact and he told me about his story and about his will to build up a brand. And I said, well, I don't know anything about electronics. I don't know anything about the market in electronics, but I know something about brand and branding. And so we said, okay, let's do it together. And he was doing the design, the concept, uh, a green concept, uh, a sustainable concept of this radio, uh, strengthening the local community. And I was trying to, uh, to, to, to make it famous in, uh, in America and uh, in Europe. 
and we succeeded. Uh, the radio has become, in 2015, awarded uh, by several design institutions. We, uh, we were present in about 250 stores uh, throughout Europe and America with uh, a, an incredible price for a simple FM radio. And, um, but it was all about a story, a real story, not a marketing story. And I was very happy and proud uh, to, to have had the opportunity and the trust of the designer, Singi uh, Katona, in order to make it run. It ran, and we learned a lot. Uh, in the end, it became also um, the foundation for our concept of green marketing, which in the recent years we developed uh, very, very fundamentally here for the European market. Wow, what a, a fascinating project. And it really shows the power of storytelling, of branding, um, and of the way that it can contribute to the development of uh, a product and its promotion as well. We've spoken a little bit um, about the practical aspects of your work and uh, about these great uh, cases and projects that you've worked on, but you also have tremendous academic achievements, more specifically in uh, brand sociology. Uh, when you think about this field of brand sociology, uh, how would you describe it to a broader audience and especially to practitioners in the branding industry who might be listening to the show? So how could it be helpful to them, perhaps in terms of uh, relating to um, their specific work in branding and marketing or, or more broadly in terms of understanding certain valuable concepts in business as well? Well, Ivo, um, you are mentioning a very crucial point because if you are in marketing, every two years, even every year, you are confronted with new trends, with new insights, with new knowledge concerning branding. Everything is new. We have to change. You have to change. Well, this might be. But being a sociologist, you always focus on the way people behave. And um, normally, what is sociology all about? Well, sociology is the science of alliances. And alliances means that we are normally used to have alliances with other people. We are founding a family or even a country, a state, a culture. But we are also able to make alliances with organizations, talking maybe about being a fan of a soccer club or something else. So we are aligned with them. We feel close to them. One of the strongest in our era alliances we are having in these times are the alliances we are having with things. So, but most of the things that are surrounding us are not, are not without any kind of logo. They are all branded. So we all know that we are part maybe of the Nike community or the Adidas community or we love Tesla and there's something else who likes Mercedes. Or it even starts, by the way, where we are going to eat. There's always a reason why we choose a Tesla and not a Mercedes. Well, and that's sociology. That's sociology. You are asking why? Do people trust a Mercedes 
more than a Tesla or than Neo, for example? Or what should Neo do that people are going to trust them more and more and more? So it's all about a social dynamic. Well, it's easy in these days to achieve awareness. For example, Ivo, if I'm now going to shout at you and cry to you and you are going to broadcast it, well, the public would say, oh, there's been a crazy guy who was shouting. But this has nothing to do with trust. So building trust has another dynamic. And as being not only in academia, but also uh, trying to support companies, it's about finding their success pattern. The reason why people do trust them for 20 years, for 60 years, for even more than 100 years, if you think about the big brands. So it's all about finding their success pattern, which has to do something with their appearance, with their stable appearance and performance throughout time. And uh, what a sociologist do, does, a brand sociologist does, he has to work out the success pattern of a brand or, if you are going to found a new brand, to work out the concept of success pattern for the future. So it's a kind of archaeology which is being installed in order to understand the reason why people trust. And this is something, something very, very fascinating. And in the end, it's the only measurement or the only instrument which we have in order to install a running system like a brand. This is truly uh, going straight to the core of branding and it also um, really digs into the human experience and the way that people connect with brands and, and build trust. But um, in many ways, this is uh, not necessarily easy to quantify or to put into numbers. And in recent years, we've seen, of course, the rise of quantitative research. And also at um, most big companies, you see CFOs playing an increasingly important role. You see boards of directors that are interested in numbers and in data. Um, so Thinking about this um, and in relation to brand sociology, how would your framework or your perspective or the findings of a sociologist be integrated into a business model or how would they be communicated to a board of directors in a way that makes sense to them? You're totally right, Ivo. It is very, very strange to some people in order to, well, to, to adapt to another mindset. In our time, we are used to numbers. We see numbers and we, we try to find out something. We try to extrapolate. We try to maybe um, work out a concept for the future. Numbers just show the effects of things you do. You can't manage a brand just by looking at numbers because you don't know the reason why you have achieved these numbers. So the look, if you're really interested in managing a brand fundamentally, has to be much more closer. You have to look for the reasons why these effects occur. This is a different story, totally different story. It has another output or a different output because if you are going to manage a brand by its numbers and everyone has the same numbers of the market because we are all doing the same market research, 
And lots of the people having their positions in marketing, uh, well, have, have, have this, uh, the same kind of education. So they come to the same output. What, what does it mean? It means that brands become more and more equal to each other. But brands are, are being bought not because they are equal to each other, because they are different to each other. So what does it mean? It means that we have to look really at the history of a brand, the performance of a brand throughout time, and the things that this brand has kept throughout all changes uh, in time. It's a, we have to find for the typical pattern which made this brand famous. This is a very different approach. Well, you know, there's something I always try to explain to our customers. There are kind of two different systems which we find in normal life. We have trivial system, like a machine. Well, a machine, you have a machine engineer who has a clear blueprint how to build up this machine. And it's very good, because in the end, if you're not going uh, to follow him and his blueprint, your machine won't work. And in the end, you can say, okay, it's zero or one, you have achieved or not. Well, this is one part of the systems we are living in. And there's another part of system which we are living in, and these are living systems. For example, a plant is a living system. A tree is a living system. A family is a living system. Why do I call them living system? Because it's not to 100% clear what will happen. Well, you can plan lots of things in your life, but you know then something is happening and, well, then you have to rearrange all your plans. For example, two years ago, we had a very, very tiny little virus and all our plans throughout the world, well, they vanished within days. So what does it mean? Well, for trivial systems, you have a clear blueprint. Living systems are characterized by the fact that in the end, you never know to 100% what will happen. You just can give a pathway with a certain kind of possibility to things which will happen. So every brand in the end can't be just managed by, by numbers. It has to manage by its causes and not by, it, by, by it, it, its effects. And that's, that's a very different, different, different approach. But, um, Ivo, the, the point uh, is this seems maybe very complicated, but it isn't. Because if you want to describe a certain living system, your brand, then it's about knowing its history and knowing its pathway uh, throughout time until now. Wow, what a comprehensive framework for understanding um, brands and the way that they become influential. Now, your thought seems to have been influenced quite a lot by a lot of the great German sociologists. And uh, in many ways, they've also um, shaped a lot of what we know about the social sciences today. So thinkers such as uh, Max Weber, uh, Jürgen Habermas, Theodor Adorno, of course, their audience is familiar with uh, the great Karl Marx as well uh, here in China. And uh, thinking about these um, sort of old school thinkers and um, these sort of grand frameworks of conceptualizing how the world works and how 
how sort of social relations work and relate to um, everything around us, including branding as well. Is this something that practitioners should uh, read or take into account um, and sort of uh, use to inform their businesses? And if yes, how should they do that? Very good question, Io. And um, well, my first reaction to your question was... Um, what I want to say to people who are really managing a brand is we are used to, to, to be aware of things that change. But if you're really going to manage a brand fundamentally, uh, I want you to hesitate and not to do everything everyone is going to tell you to change. Successful brands have something to do with a lot of hesitation and, well, stability. Well, why I'm telling this? Because you asked me for the sociologists and the classical approach. Well, classical uh, authors are not classical because they are just old. It's, they, are, they are classical because they said something valuable which seem to be, well, actual until now. And, of course, we're talking about um, Max Weber. We're talking about Georg Simmel, these very famous uh, German sociologists, or e even Emile Durkheim, coming from France, who has also very much influenced uh, sociology. Well, what, do, what did these thinkers do? At that, uh, at that time, they wanted to understand how these alliances of people work. What does alliance strength or when alliances get weaker? So their work uh, hadn't been concentrated on some actual topics. No, they wanted to understand the structure of social, uh, social alliances. And that's interesting, and that's why they are valuable until now. And you mentioned Karl Marx. Well, uh, by accident, I've got the first volume of the Capital here, Das Kapital. Well, there's a lot of things you might criticize or ask nowadays um, mentioning Karl Marx. But there's been something which has been very, very important if you look at Karl Marx. For me, I'm always uh, uh, telling my students and even some of the managers that the first marketeer of all times have, has been Karl Marx. Why? Because he talks about the myth of a thing, the mystical fetishism of brands, he, he, he's, he's, of things, he, he says in his works, which is very interesting because he differentiates between utility values and exchange values. And if you talk about a brand... It's not about utility. You don't need 500 different car brands if it is just about bringing a person from A to B. It's about the exchange value, why we might prefer a certain brand and not another one. So that is very interesting to know. And um, talking about brand sociology, it has been highly influenced by a German thinker by Ferdinand Tenius, Tenius um, who, who published um, a, a book already 130 years ago, uh, which was called um, Society and Community. 
a very, very important volume for brand sociology because it differentiates two different types of how, idealistically, two different types of how alliances work or of, of how they are structured. Uh, it's, for example, if you talk about communities, we're talking about families, the trust you've got in the family. If you talk about society, then it's the rational side of alliances we are li living in. And now, what has it to do with, with branding or brand management? Well, we are sometimes talking about brands knowing that they are products. And sometimes we are talking about products knowing that they are indeed brands. What is the difference? Well, the difference is a product is something that works very rationally. I'm just buying it in order, well, because I might have a need. For a brand, it's different. You're standing there in front of a shelf and you might have some products that seem quite similar. But in the end, you are choosing this special brand and you're not just choosing it for the first time, but maybe for years and years and years. So something works that seems to be very similar to the structures which we might have in a, in a family, while for the other side, there's something that works very rationally. So this is very important to know because now we're talking about a brand on a foundation. Lots of the marketing theories we have in the moment, well, they stop at a certain point, at the crucial point. Why do people choose? Why do they choose for a long, long time? And why it is so hard to build up a working brand and not just a product everybody knows and which might occur very, very, very fast and even or, or, or does even that fast vanishes because as soon as you, if you don't, if you don't uh, in, in invest in awareness uh, strategies, um, all the kind of perception has, has lost its value. Well, these are really important insights for anybody that's interested in growing a brand and managing it in the long run. And you've also spoken about the way that um, brand sociology and sociology at large has been influenced by um, a lot of German thinkers and that has shaped your thinking as well. Now, just like us and just like traditions in social science, brands also have their origins. And at one point, if I'm not mistaken in your work, you um, quoted uh, Alexander Dijkzil who wrote that the origin of a brand effectively determines its future. But of course, we live in a globalized world today. So do you believe that this is still true? And uh, could you give us some examples as well? That's a very important question. It's also about change. It's, it's, it's about the fact um, at what certain amount a brand has to adopt uh, to the needs to a changing world. Well, in brand sociology, we have a, a very clear concept about it. It's not about uh, uh, re uh, reproduction of performances uh, in an identically way, identical way. It's not about doing the same all the time. If you do it like this, a brand would vanish. It would not work. It's different. 
It's about self-similarity. I like to give you an example from nature because self-similarity was researched in biology. If you look at a tree, you never will find two similar leaves on one tree. Nevertheless, you know, they are all coming from the, from, from, from this, uh, from the same type of tree. Why does it come? Well, it comes from the fact concerning its DNA, concerning uh, the, 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 num the, the amount of nutrition, the, the number of sun, winds, whatever, shaped the certain or the, the special form and, and design of every leaf. It adapts to nature. Adaption, self-similar adaption, well, is the secret, the success secret of every living system. It means that if you talk about brands, well, a brand like Volkswagen, like the Golf, everybody knows, well, it was developed in 1974 for the first time. And it still, well, well it still exists. I think it's now the eighth generation of Volkswagen which we have. And you might see that the first Volkswagen, 50 years ago, well, if you look at the engine, if you look at the design, well, it's very different from nowadays Volkswagen. But nevertheless, you will see that the sense of a Volkswagen in its design, in its engineering, in its way of adapting to uh, technical uh, developments has still stayed the same. So it's not about staying to your history, just doing it all the time for the same way. It's about looking at the concept, at the core concept, the core values, but we are talking more not about values, but about performances, and asking yourself, okay, I now know that I stand for a certain performance in a certain way, how do we interpret? How do we manage to bring it to our nowadays needs? So it's a constant way of adapting, but staying to your roots. This is the well, success, success secret of every brand. So if you look at, at the big brands nowadays, you will always find an adaption to certain needs, actual needs, but in the same way of an interpretation and staying to your roots. That, that is, that is uh, the, the core, um, well, management um, duty of everyone who has to deal with a brand. And uh, that's not easy. We call it uh, the genetic code of a brand. You have to develop the genetic code of your brand in order to manage it and to adopt it to the needs of nowadays. This is uh, really something that I think relates to um, a lot of things that we see around us and a lot of cases of brands that all of us know. We've all seen a lot of car models that sort of come and go. We've also seen, as you mentioned, the Golf, which I think until recently was still one of the most popular uh, models of Volkswagen in, in Germany. Uh, and people clearly still love the car and its, its new iterations. And... Um, of course, a lot of your work also concerns um, European companies, both larger ones and, and SMEs as well. And uh, you've uh, written about the concept of, quote unquote, European 
brand sociology. Now, some scholars would argue that research and theoretical frameworks should be universal, and um, that, for instance, if you are developing a theory or a framework, if it uh, doesn't apply to different regions, then it's not a framework or a theory, then it's just empirical research. And then you have other scholars, which also have different views on theory and how it should work in terms of cultural particularities, in terms of uh, the way that it relates to historical conditions, and, and so on. So thinking uh, about this perspective, there are a lot of things that some people would say make Europe unique. For instance, it's uh, traditions in terms of uh, social science thinkers that we spoke about, um, the fact that there are a lot of SMEs in Europe. They're really the, the driving force of, of the European economy. We have the European um, SME Center in Beijing, um, who are good friends of mine, and they're funded by the European Union. They help European SMEs enter the Chinese market, um, and they provide free services. And then at the same time, you also have um, the idea that all of these companies have to um, follow certain frameworks uh, in terms of um, entering the market as well. So is there a European brand sociology that's unique? Um, and if it is, what is it and, and what can we learn from it as well? Well, it's not about being unique, just to be unique. We talk about roots. We talked about the fact that every brand has developed, well, its kind of performance due to its history. And if, we, if, if I talk about European brand management, um, well, it's about the fact that we have a certain, as you mentioned, a certain structure of economy uh, in Europe, which is m mostly held by these small and medium-sized family, mostly family-orientated businesses, which we have here uh, now for, for more than 100 years. These kind of um, companies are, are mostly hidden champions. They, in, in a certain way, they, 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 they perform and they have some kind of, of performances, uh, well, of products which are unique worldwide. So, and there's something else which is very important to know. These companies, well, they have managed to install globally a certain kind of collective trust in, 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 in their segment within the buyers, especially in the B2B buyers. Um, and they do not invest a lot of their, uh, of their budgets in uh, classical marketing. Why? Because their, their work um, of, uh, of convincing people has already been done. It is done, it has been done because their work in the, in the last decades has been so good that word to mouth, um, people well, are asking themselves, okay, who has a good performance? Is there a company we can trust? And a lot of times, it, it, it is these kind of medium, small and uh, small and medium-sized companies, um, especially coming from Europe. What do I want to sell? There's a certain kind of difference of convincing people, uh, of convincing markets, um, between a classical American view on the one hand and a classical European view. This has nothing to do with being right or wrong. It's a result of a different structure which we have in the economy. Because America is much orientated on these big globalized companies uh, which, which occurred during the last years. But 
especially on the, on the field of small, small and medium-sized companies, you see that there's not such a developed kind of, of uh, environment which we have in Europe. So what does it mean? If you have a segment of companies which exists for three or four generations, which has managed to convince people nowadays without investing lots of budgets in marketing, then you have to ask yourself, what is the secret of their, uh, of their success? How have they managed, contrary to, to the American companies, which are always orientated in marketing and classical marketing, to convince their market? And that's why what we did, uh, we, we did a lot of researches, we used our experiences in order to work out this success pattern of European brand management, which is different because it has something to do with convincing people on the long run and not only to create awareness by managing huge marketing budgets. So it's about really building brands and not about being or, or building up uh, well known products. This is the, the main difference. And well, well, to be frank to you, Ivo, and to the public, it's very hard for European scholars and European academ academics in this field of brand management um, to be recognized by the scientific community if you're not coming from the classical markets, from, from the classical views uh, in America, because uh, it's a closed shop. So in order to do our marketing <laughs> as being in academia, we searched for, for, for a working branding, and so we called it European brand management because we think it's different. And especially in markets where we have uh, uh, now lots of brands who are being developed, like in China, I think Chinese brands and companies can learn a lot more from Europe than from America concerning the way how branch might be managed if you look at the long run. Because if I understand something in China, it's about looking at things on the long run, not the short one. It's definitely something that characterizes the way that the business community here thinks, trying to uh, think long term. And in a way, I think uh, you, you uh, sort of brought up a very interesting idea of potentially developing an integrated um, sort of more global and more holistic marketing theory, which combines the European and the American perspective because they apply to different types of companies. And of course, in China, we do have many companies that resemble European ones in a way. And then there is also large multinationals that perhaps resemble the American ones in a way. Um, so when you think about these different companies, when you think about global mega multinationals and you think about SMEs, when you think about global brands and local brands, um, what are some important differences that the brand managers from these different types of companies should keep in mind in terms of uh, their practical work? Because their audience is uh, made up of uh, people that work for different types of companies. So what are some of the key um, differences for them to pay attention to? Giving you this answer, but I think there's no difference. I think there's no difference about big companies or specialized companies, B2B or B2C companies, concerning the way we, we should do uh, brand management. Um, why? Because we don't have to look at the channels or the strategy 
of convincing and marketing a company, first to have to, we have to look in the inside of a brand. We have to look at their structure. For me, it's not a difference between a, a globally acting company or a small company. Because the first step we will do is to look inside the company, look for the expectation of the public, and then work out how these expectations of the public have been developed or strengthened or weakened during the last time, last years, decades, whatever. And knowing the structure, you can ask yourself, what can we do in our case in order well, to, 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 to improve these expectations in the mind of the people. It's not, about, it's not about asking, okay, do we need different channels? It's not about to ask, do we need a kind of different strategy? No, it's about the first step which you have to do if you are really talking about brand sociology is to look at the way this company has developed and how the, the, the expectations in the market have occurred during the last years. That's what we normally do. And so there's no difference between global companies or just maybe even a small restaurant at the corner because both of them might have a different public. But the way the expectations um, do, uh, do exist Is, is, is the same. Indeed, uh, all companies have to do certain um, basic things that relate to the way that they present themselves and the way that they uh, make people relate to them. Um, and a big part of that is communication, because regardless of whether you're a larger company or an SME, uh, you still have to communicate your message and you still have to um, get it out and, and reach your, your target um, customers. So from your experience, thinking about communication, which do you believe are some of the um, best practices that you've seen uh, throughout the years? And what, which are some examples of uh, sort of perhaps bad advertising or, or bad communication? Um, you could perhaps also share some uh, cases or some examples from your uh, personal experience as well. Coming back to our, to our main, main product, or our main way of, of Of analyzing brands. As I described to you, um, Ivo, um, the point is, uh, if we are going to manage a brand, the first look is, will be inside. So we will make a kind of, um, well, psychogram or performance DNA of a brand. So in the end, if you look at it, you will find um, in, our, in our analysis about eight to 12 core performances which characterize a brand. Now it's time to look at the numbers because now you can ask and you can uh, do some kind of research and surveys and you can ask the public, okay, which of these eight or 10 or 12 performances seem to be the most important one to you? Which one do you really expect to be there if you, if you think about the brand? So you might get a kind of clear view what of these 10 performances might be the most important one to expect. And then we are concentrating just on the top two and we are just reproducing these ex expectations in the way we are going to communicate them. It's not about opening something else, maybe making the image of a brand broader, bigger, different. No, it's about, well, 
strengthening the expectations which already exist in the mind of the people. And having this in mind and taking this into recognition, the point will now be that lots of the advertisements which we have today might seem very creative, might seem very trendy, they might seem also very purposeful. The success of advertisement is still that you sell something. And with advertisement, you sell more than without it. Normally, in these days, we are just measuring the awareness. We are saying, okay, there has been a lot of engagement, a lot of likes uh, on, on Facebook and all these kind of social networks or whatever exists. But this is not an indicator for success. The indicator for success of advertisement is in the end, am I really going to sell more after this advertisement? And how do I make it? Well, I have to secure people that my expectations will be fulfilled. So, in the end, if I look now, for example, for good advertisements, um, well, you will see that all these kind of maybe boring advertisements which we see might be the best ones. They don't win prizes at these kind of awards uh, or these kind of awards which we have at the festival for advertisements in America, in Asia, in, in, in Europe. But in the end, they just reproduce my expectations. And if I look here at European brands, you will see brands like Miele, uh, for example, or brands uh, like also Volkswagen. Um, we have brands uh, in Italy who are very strong, like Barilla, who in the end, they just reproduce my expectation in a certain way, not the same way all the time, but in an adapted way to the expectation which we have in the mind of the people. Yeah, that indeed uh, happens sometimes if you measure especially the efficiency of uh, branding and advertising in terms of sales. Um, very often, um, the fancy ads maybe get a lot of uh, views or media attention, but don't necessarily result in a conversion to sales. Um, so we've uh, spoken about um, communication, ads and branding, but there's also uh, another aspect to um, branding and its sort of um, relationship between a person and a store or a product, which you spoke about at the beginning um, of our interview as well. So we know that we live in an area where uh, there's the rise of artificial intelligence, um, VR, AR. We've just saw the new um, Apple um, virtual reality glasses that were released. And um, We've also seen at the same time that there are a lot of um, companies that um, grew very, very quickly because of their online sales platforms. We saw the rise of this is becoming a part of sort of the next stage of their development. So when you think of this sort of contradiction between the rise of virtual and the rise of physical, uh, of course, there are plenty of perspectives and levels of analysis that, that you could um, uh, employ here. but. What would you make of these changes and developments from your perspective and from the perspective of uh, branding sociology? This is really exciting because we are talking about digital brands. We are talking the rise of digital brands. But now you're mentioning uh, these kind of big players uh, like Amazon or, or even others who are going to open their own shops. What does it mean? Well, being a sociologist, you, tell, you say people, okay, people do need 
a real, a real, uh, well, perception, confrontation, um, knowledge of their brands. Virtual reality or digital uh, realities might be very important, of course. There, there, there's no, 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 no doubt about it. But in the end, uh, we all make um, our experiences in real life. In real life, a brand has to perform. They have to give you what they normally said to you that they are going to give you in the future. So every point in which I am able to, well, to witness my brand to, to, in order to, to, real, to, to, to make it real is something very important. Well, and you know, you talk about the changes which I have as a brand manager now with this kind of tool which everyone uses. Some years ago, you still had a certain kind of big platforms. You might have your advertisement on paper or on a TV screen or even in a shop. Now, the main channel of information is this one. And the problem is the, the screen is so small. As a brand, you have so many messages well, to communicate. But looking at this screen, you have to focus. That's all about You have to focus on the way you are interpreting uh, reality. Which are your core values? Which are your core performances? And this has to be managed on this little screen. That's all about. If you're talking now about kind of, uh, of virtual reality, of augmented realities, well, it even gets harder because you are more distracted. You have so many possibilities. What does it mean for a brand? Look at your DNA, look at your genetic code. You have to, to choose the one which is important to the public and then to communicate and communicate and communicate all the way around again and again and again. Not in the same way. It's not about doing this, it for, the same way for all the time and for, all, for, for every channel. But adapt it to the channel, adapt it to the segment, adapt it to the public which is going to see it but keep to the message and the performance, which is core uh, for your brand. Of course, this is uh, certainly advice that um, a lot of companies uh, could take on board and they could uh, perhaps even think about um, focusing the way that um, they communicate their message in terms of uh, bringing people to a physical store, perhaps, or focusing it in terms of the way that it is uh, designed and communicated on virtual platforms as well. And uh, uh, we've mentioned that people um, form, in a way, relationships with things or with objects. But of course, other scholars have also spoken about um, relationships between people and brands or relationships between people and companies. So how are these different types of relations um, um, sort of different uh, from the ones between people and other people? And um, what implications does this have for, for a practitioner? Mm -hmm. Well, um, of course, there, there's a relation between uh, people and things. But uh, we are not talking about, well, this might be, this might be a psychological uh, a view of a psychologist concerning a brand. What is my perception, my feeling towards a brand? Well, this might be true. And there we are talking about images and brands. Images might be very useful for brands. Of course, everyone talking about marketing is talking about the image of a brand. Well, being a sociologist, you would 
look at it a bit closer because even if you might have the best image you can imagine, in the end, your brand and your product, your product has to perform. So even a brand like Nike, even a brand like Mercedes or Ferrari, well, they, have a, they, they might have a very, very golden image, but if the car does not run, if your shoe, after wearing it once, well, gets broken, then your image has no value anymore. What does it mean? Well, in my eyes, it means that the kind of alliance which we have towards a brand is always based on performances. And we sometimes um, have uh, the, the tendency in marketing to think that we might cover a bad performance by having a great communication set. This might work, this might work for a certain time, but it won't last long. Of course, uh, the image of brands uh, plays a, a central role and uh, a part of it is, of course, uh, performance, the performance um, that uh, consumers experience over time and, and the way that uh, they sort of build their perceptions and trust uh, based on this. And um, when we speak about identity um, and the way that brands present themselves these days, um, there is a lot of talk about green branding. And broadly, of course, a lot of people understand the concept intuitively, um, just as they understand the concept of a green economy, it's about sustainability. Um, and we've developed this sort of notion that we should all um, live a more sustainable life, starting with sort of the second half of the 20th century and so on. But on the other hand, this is also um, a little bit of a vague idea because in a way you could say that any brand can become green nowadays. Um, so thinking about this concept and, and um, about the implications of, of this trend, how would you define what actually green branding is and uh, what are sort of the latest trends in this area? What are the implications that uh, they have for practitioners as well? Yeah, well, of course, we're talking about a trend in marketing which now occurred for, for about 20 years. Uh, which has become global. And I think, personally speaking, I think that's a good trend, uh, looking at the transformation which we have to install in the economy in order, uh, well, to preserve the planet. No doubt, doubt it. But if we'd like to define the concept of green or sustainable uh, marketing or management of a brand, we got a lot of definitions. Well, in my eyes, we worked on it uh, for for certain for a certain time. We published a book which is called Green Branding uh, some some years ago, and we defined in a way everything which has a sensitive uh, way of acting with other people, with acting with the nature, with acting with animals, and a certain social system in which we are all uh, managing uh, our brands and companies, well, is something which we define as being green. We are coming from the concept of brand sociology again. And what does it mean? If you now look at the way of a lot of companies are dealing with this way of, 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 uh, of challenge about transforming their company into green and communicating it, you could really, you, you, you can't, anymore differentiate lots of communication because everyone is telling the same story, is using the same colors, 
is uh, is using the same images of saying, okay, we are now a green company. This is very um, dangerous. Why? Because we said a brand is a differentiator. A brand is different. And now we are all dealing with the same topic. We are all telling the same story. Well, okay, this might be that we are, we are changing the images, whatever. But we are all telling the same story at the same time. That's crazy. How does it come? Well, you might say <laughs> in an unpolite way, because uh, if you're not really changing your, your business concept, you're transferring the transformation to communication. This is bad and it won't work. On the other hand, I think it's because we don't really know how to deal to tell our our individual brand story and to do, to adopt it um, to to a general need what do i mean if we are going to transform the communication on a green basis we are looking again to the genetic code of the brand which we worked out we are looking at these kind of eight or 12 success pattern bricks ideas and then we are we are we are looking at it at everyone and tell and asking us okay what can we do in this performance um, 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 sector to make it green or do we already have something which seems to be green good to nature good to people good good to the social system and we are picking it out and giving it to a communication agency, telling them, okay, these are the three points we want you to, to, to tell the public in a creative way. Let's see each other again in three weeks. We are making a pitch and everyone has the same, the same background and it is his duty uh, to tell the story. And then we are choosing the one who really kept to the story, to the individual story of the company, of the brand, and, uh, and, and, and has, has, has worked out a certain individual story. So that's all about, if we're talking about green branding, it's about making it green on your DNA and not just telling a story or using a trend in storytelling in order, well, to, to seem like green, but not to be green. This uh, definitely uh, perhaps explains uh, some of the success that certain companies have had and uh, some of the challenges that others have faced in terms of uh, their transition to becoming, uh, quote unquote, greener. And uh, thinking about this trend, there's um, a lot of other upcoming trends in marketing as well. So when you think of uh, marketing and branding, and if you try and look into your crystal ball and uh, try and predict uh, what might uh, happen in the future and what the big uh, what the big upcoming trends are, what would you um, tell our audience to watch out for, and how can we prepare ourselves best for um, the near future? So thank you for giving me this opportunity, <laughs> and I want to have this glass ball even. But um, I think for me, it is very curious to look at the next years, maybe the next 10 years, um, concerning the big digital brands which we have in the moment in America and Europe and Africa and Asia. Why? Because everyone is talking about these big brands which, which exist now for 10, 20 years. And everyone is telling me, okay, these are big brands. And I'm not convinced. Why? Because for a brand sociologist, the brand begins the moment it 
passes from one generation to the other generation. The moment people really have something in their mind and it's not exchangeable anymore. So if you talk about the big brands, like maybe Airbnb in the moment, they seem to be very successful. Yes, of course. But it took them 15 years to become successful because everyone is talking about building up a brand. It's very fast. No. If you look at the big brands, then you will see that at least it takes them 10, 12 years to get into some kind of stable waters, not earning money. It's just getting into stable waters. This has become a bit, a bit more faster uh, in, the, in the digital era than before because in before you needed about 25 years to become stable. Um, but this would be very interesting for me to know if all these big players will still exist in 10 years. I'm not, I'm not convinced because in the end you have to earn money and not only to generate cash flow. So this is very important. Looking at all the kinds of, 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 of changes which we have in the moment, I would, I would recommend to stay calm because, well, the dynamics of trust, of trust buildings do not change. It's just the channels that change. And so some kind of positive hesitation, some kind of leaning back uh, might help and I'm, I'm really curious to see if the big brands, the big players will have this kind of relaxed uh, view on all the changes which, which occur in the moment. That would indeed be very exciting to see and uh, I guess there's uh, a lot of uh, also exciting uh, potential openings as well as uh, some of these companies survive and as uh, some of them uh, have to face uh, new and upcoming challengers. Um, now, you've shared with us today a tremendous um, amount of knowledge and fantastic advice for uh, people that work in branding uh, and for people in academia as well. But as we know, the most important people, the decision makers are often very busy and they're usually um, the chairman of the board or the CEO of a company. And um, this is why as we move towards the end of our conversation, um, one question that uh, I also wanted to ask you is if you had just one minute of all of the top global CEOs time, what would your message or what would your most essential advice be for them? <laughs> one minute? Okay. <laughs> that, 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 that is very tricky. But to tell the truth, um, I always have some quotation with me. I'm always using at the end of a workshop, which I have with CEOs or the management board. Uh, it's uh, more than 2000 years old, but I think the content of this quotation is still valuable today. And uh, I want to quote it now. It would be some consolation for the feebleness of ourselves and of our works if all things should perish as slowly as they come into being, but as it is, increases a sluggish growth, but the way to ruin is rapid. It's from Seneca, and I think that's, that's the main topic. It's very hard to build up brand, brands. It's very hard to build up trust. We know it from our personal life. If you tell somebody, trust me, and you have seen it for the first time, you won't trust that person. Of course not. 
But if you look at your friends, well, why are they your friends? Well, they are your friends because you have made certain experiences to miss with them. You expect something from them throughout the time. And then trust is being built slowly, step by step. And the point is, when do we lose our friends? Well, we lose our friends normally if you have some experience you haven't expected. Something occurs and you say, okay, I would have never thought this behavior of my friend. And then you say, okay, I quit. Friendship is over. And that's the same way if we talk about brands and branding. We have to build up trust. And trust building has something to do with keeping to your performances, keeping the expectations, and building up reliable, reliable well, relationship. That's all about. I think now I needed three minutes, but I hope that the CEO still <laughs> hears at me. <laughs> Evil. Thank you. We hope that they're still listening. Um, this is fantastic, and it's a great. It was a great pleasure to uh, talk to you today. So, of course, we hope that um, you'll have the chance to also um, speak in person to um, our audience here in China um, very soon as well. So, whenever we're going to see you um, here um, in China, talking to all of our uh, friends and all of our uh, um, sort of uh, CEOs in our network. I will be very happy to come. I've been there uh, just this year uh, in springtime. It was a incredible great experience being in China um, and uh, I would love to come uh, yeah again and uh, I hope uh, uh, in the coming in the coming time and uh, first of all thank you very much Ivo for these great interview this has been very, very interesting questions I'm very happy uh, to have been your guest thank you very much well it's our pleasure Oliver uh, we hope to see you in person very very soon and thank you for being on the Branding Boardroom. Thank you.